you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. So Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 38, contains five different encounters with Jesus, with a number of different audiences. And, and at face value, you may have been wondering, why are we talking about all of these things at the same time? Uh, for, for a sermon. And, and the answer is because Mark is using them to interpret one another and to teach us about what it means to see Jesus clearly. So, so all of the passages in today's text deal with questions of perception. And, and, and so we should ask ourselves these questions in light of today's text. Am I seeing Jesus clearly? And, and if so, how should I respond to him? And if not, what is keeping me from seeing him clearly? And how can I eliminate those things? So throughout the gospel of of Mark, Jesus has been trying to show the people he encounters the the full extent of the promised kingdom of God. He's come to show that that he is establishing the kingdom of God on earth. And, And he's done this primarily through a few different methods, through his teaching, through food miracles, through casting out demons, and through healing people. And, and so in Mark, healing narratives are, are a huge part of what's going on in Mark, and it's actually the people who experience Jesus' healing or him casting out demons that Mark uses to interpret the kingdom of God for us. And, and so, for example, when Jesus casts demons out of people, what we see is that that these stories tell us that Jesus is the Holy One of God, that He's the Son of God, that He is the one who has the power to bind Satan and plunder the kingdom of darkness. And we know this primarily because when Jesus encounters people possessed by demons, the demons start shouting things like, Jesus, you're the Holy One of God. Jesus, you're the Son of God. And so we begin to learn about Jesus' identity. When Jesus heals the leper, we learn that Jesus is the one who has the power to purify us and cleanse us from all our sin, to make us presentable before God. When Jesus heals the paralytic, he he comes to the paralytic, and and before he even heals him, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And and then he he heals him and allows him to take up his mat and walk. And so what we learn is that, that Jesus first has the power to forgive sins and that he has the ability to empower us to walk in holiness after we have been forgiven. And so I could go on and on with all of these narratives, but in today's text, in the middle, what we find is Jesus healing a blind man. And so we should expect that from Jesus healing a blind man, that this is going to speak to us about the nature of who Jesus is and the nature of his kingdom, and that it's going to speak to the surrounding events. And this becomes even more obvious when we realize that that all of the other things that are going on in this passage are are about how how do people perceive Jesus? Perception and a sight miracle, like these things go hand in hand. How how do you perceive Jesus? And Jesus is healing a blind man. And and so let's look at at the narrative of of the blind man, and then we'll go back to the other things that happen in this passage. Verses 22 through 26 say this, And they came to Bethsaida, And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand 
and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. So, so in, this, in just a few verses, this man went from seeing nothing to seeing everything clearly, but in the middle was this experience of partial sight, where, where he said, I, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So, so there's these three categories. There's seeing nothing, there's seeing partially, and then there's seeing clearly. And these three categories are going to be important for us to understand both the other people that Jesus interacts with in this text and ourselves in light of our experience with Jesus. Either we see Jesus clearly and therefore we see everything clearly. We, we are blind to the truth about Jesus and therefore we see nothing clearly or we see him in part. But, but we need him to do more. The blind man is showing us something about the kingdom of God. He's showing us something about what it means to interact with Jesus. But then we have the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they show us all of the pitfalls about how to approach Jesus with a personal agenda. And all throughout the Gospel of Mark, if you've been reading with us as we've gone through, the Pharisees are constantly trying to trap Jesus in his words. They're trying to point out all the ways that he's breaking the law. Mainly, they're showing the ways that he's going against their traditions. And Jesus poses such a threat to the Pharisees' cultural influence and to the ways of practicing religion that they have established through through decades of tradition, that they are now plotting to kill him. And so in Mark chapter 7, Jesus addresses the Pharisees and he says this, that they have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish their own traditions. Like That's a heavy thing to say. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own traditions. And so with that in mind, our text begins with the Pharisees approaching Jesus. And, and in context, Jesus has just healed a Gentile woman who was possessed by a demon. He gave hearing and speech to a man born deaf, and then he fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. So Jesus has been doing these amazing signs, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and the Pharisees came to Jesus, and the text says they came to him argumentative and trying to test him. And so they asked him for a sign from heaven, which How ironic, after he's been doing these things. They ask for a sign from heaven. And this makes Jesus angry because he knows what's in their hearts. He knows what they're up to. And he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Jesus had given them more than enough signs. He has been consistently performing signs and giving clear examples that he is working with heavenly power to establish heavenly realities, and they come to him asking for a heavenly sign. See, Jesus knows the problem isn't that the Pharisees haven't seen the signs. It's that the Pharisees don't like the signs that Jesus is performing. Because the signs that Jesus is performing don't fit into their notions of the way things ought to be. Jesus is bucking their system. The ways that they observe fasting and the Sabbath, the way that they interact with Gentiles. 
And so he, Jesus has come and he's rejecting all of these man-made traditions that the Pharisees have anytime they prove to be a hindrance to godliness and freedom. And so the Pharisees demanding a sign from Jesus was a bad faith test. Because what they were really doing is looking for another data point to justify their distrust and contempt for Jesus. They didn't want Jesus to prove himself worthy. They wanted another reason to prove to themselves that Jesus wasn't worthy. And in our context, I think there's three primary ways that that we can be like the Pharisees in this passage. And I'm going to challenge you to look for yourself in them so that you can be aware of, of the things that are going on in your heart, the ways that you might be approaching Jesus, so that you can turn from that. The first is that there are those who are so beholden to the traditions and philosophies and ethics of the current age that the teachings and callings of Christ seem undesirable and even offensive. Second, there are those who have deep-rooted religious arrogance in which they're so concerned with every single thing in the church being perfectly in line with their convictions and their beliefs on secondary issues that they never actually begin to produce the fruit that God is calling them to produce, namely good works and righteousness and love for the brotherhood because they're too busy being critical, cynical, and self-righteous. Now, if if I'm going to be honest, this is the way I'm most likely to be like a Pharisee. This is something that I regularly have to pray against, is is this sort of self-righteous arrogance and this this overly critical desire for everything to match all of the things that I think it should be. And and then the third are those who have a desire for a God of their own imagining. And what, what happens is that creates a hardness of heart toward God as He actually is. So the healing of the blind man is in the middle of this story and it's actually calling us to remember the story of the Pharisees and and see, oh, they're the blind ones. See, the, the blind man goes from being blind to seeing everything clearly. The Pharisees come to Jesus constantly proclaiming that they already see everything clearly and Jesus is telling us, that means you're blind because I haven't yet touched you. I I haven't yet healed you. And so if you think you see everything clearly, you're actually blind as it relates to my kingdom. The prophets said they had eyes, but they do not see. So I I wonder, have you demanded signs from, from Jesus? Have you demanded signs from Jesus to test Him, even though if you're honest with yourself, He's already shown you more than enough? Even though you're well aware there's an empty tomb outside of Jerusalem. Will you only worship Him if He passes your doctrinal assessment? Makes your life better? Or brings about a specific change in you or the world around you that fits in with your notion of goodness? I'm afraid that some of you want God to change for you instead of being willing to change for Him. If He passes your test, then He will have proved to you that He's real, that He cares for you, and that He loves you. But hear me, He's already given you enough signs. You don't need another sign. Either, if this is you, you've chosen to ignore them, or you haven't been satisfied with them, and if you're like the Pharisees, it's probably because you don't actually want to follow Him at all. 
you just want to accuse him and, and prove to yourself that he's not worth following. In fact, this disposition makes it really easy to blame Christ for your not wanting him. Well, I mean, I would, I would believe if he just did this for me, if he just showed me this, he died for you. Is that not enough? Some people spend their whole lives looking at God for who he is and wishing that he were different, all the while missing out on the immense joy of conforming their life to the way he designed it to be. See, the Pharisees saw Christ and his good works, but they were totally blind to his goodness in it. They thought he was evil because he was calling them to change when, when actually he was calling them into immense joy and life and satisfaction. And following this interaction, Jesus hops on a boat with his disciples to go across the Sea of Galilee, and they didn't bring enough bread to eat. And Jesus knew bread was on their minds, and so he says this, he says, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And this warning is important because the Pharisees and the Herodians are enemies of the gospel, but their voices are very prominent in first century Israel, and their arguments are compelling, and they are well respected, and so in other words, it's really safe to follow the Pharisees or the Herodians. And Jesus knows that, that if his disciples allow their attitudes and their convictions and their lives to be conformed even a little to the ways that the Pharisees and the Herodians want it to, that it will work like leaven in a lump of dough. And that it will grow and grow and grow. And that it will end up producing bad fruit instead of good fruit. And so we have to stand guard against this sort of thing as well. You need to be aware of the leaven of worldly and culturally popular teachings that are opposed to Christ and His kingdom. And hear this, some of them proclaim to be Christian. But Jesus is calling us to true sight. He's calling us not to be blinded by the illusion of the sight of the Pharisees and what they have to offer. And so we have to be on guard against those who who so confidently profess that they see everything clearly, right? Like those are the easiest voices in the room to follow, the ones who seem the most confident, that they see everything clearly. Follow me, I've got it figured out. But what we learn from the Pharisees is that if Jesus hasn't touched you, you're actually still blind. Following this warning about leaven, the disciples were reminded that they didn't have enough bread to eat, which I don't think was exactly the hope that Jesus had when he warned them about the leaven of the Pharisees and, and Herod. And so Jesus, a bit frustrated, says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Do you not yet see things clearly? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets did you take up? Like, this is how he's asking it. He's asking these questions so, so his disciples have to respond. And I imagine them doing it a bit like middle schoolers when their parents prove that they're right. And they say, 12. Took up 12 baskets. And the seven for the 4,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. Seven baskets. Do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? See, see, the disciples see, but they don't yet see clearly. 
They see in part, but they don't see clearly. They're, they're still worried about having enough to eat when Jesus is on the boat. And Jesus is astonished at this. He fed 9,000 people in their presence with their help on 12 loaves of bread, and there were enough leftovers to feed a lot more people. And Jesus says, you think you're going to go hungry with me on the boat? Like, don't you get it? Like, people don't go hungry with me around. If you're following me, if you're with me on my mission, you will never have to worry about being provided for. I've got that. Don't you get it? Don't you understand that I have compassion for you, that I love you, that I also have immense power, and that I will wield all three of those things simultaneously for your good so long as you're with me? Church, do you hear that? Like Jesus might call you to some really hard things and it might not look like there's enough bread on the boat, but if He's with you, you're not going to go hungry. He, he's got love for you. He has compassion for you. And He has immense power. But we're like the disciples a lot of times. Sometimes we see Jesus in what we think is clearly and that we're, we're willing to say, yeah, He's Lord and Savior. Yeah, he died and, and rose again. He's covered my sins. We have an honest desire to follow Him and to serve Him, but because of our sin or, or at times a lack of spiritual maturity or, 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 or because we are too focused on things of the world, the things of man, we only see Him in part. See, this passage in Mark 8 shows us that, that partial sight in the kingdom, it, it happens when we place our focus on the things of man, when we put our hope in the things of man rather than the things of God. And, and so... so we're going to be prone to being afraid when it looks like we don't have enough as long as we are most concerned about worldly things. If you're most concerned about comfort or personal satisfaction or financial provision or, or whatever it is, you're, you're probably going to miss out on seeing fully at times. I, I know I do. And in those moments, we're going to fail to remember the fullness of Jesus' love and care and provision for us. That's why Jesus says, don't you remember? Like, you, you've seen me do it. You've seen it. But how many times, like, for those of you who have been walking with Jesus for a while, do you get in a moment and you just don't know how on earth God could see you through it, and then you, you, God somehow shows you, like, remember five years ago when it was worse and I saw you through it? Like, don't, don't you think I'm going to be with you now? Don't you think I have the ability to care for you now? But, but sometimes... We, we don't see clearly because to see fully is to be confident that God is always going to set a table for you in the presence of your enemies. But, but we don't always see fully. Sometimes we only see in part. We see this partial sight play out even more in verses 27 through 33. Because at first it seems like the disciples perceive things well, that they're seeing everything clearly. Peter is, is the mouthpiece for the disciples here as he often is. And Jesus asked them two questions. He says, who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? And, and brothers and sisters, those are good questions to, to reckon with regularly. Like as you're doing ministry in the world, who do people say Jesus is and who do you say he is? Because answers to both of those questions are going to be really important. And, and Peter speaks up. He says, he says, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're a prophet. Jesus says, yeah, but who do you say I am? He says, you're the Christ. You're the Christ. 
It's such a beautiful and confident proclamation. Peter is saying, Jesus, you're the chosen one. You're the one that we've all been waiting for. You're the hope of all the world. Right? Peter sees clearly. Right? He sees it. He's, he sees what Jesus has been trying to communicate throughout the entire gospel, that he is the Christ, that he is the all in all, the promised Messiah. So, so when we ask those questions to ourselves, we would answer, like our world views Jesus in certain ways, right? Some say he's a good teacher, he's a moral example, a spiritual guru. Some say Jesus is a bad influence who started a dangerous movement, right? Like we, we have friends that believe that. And others say that he's just this kind of all-encompassing uh, cosmic teddy bear, this symbol of love and inclusion and charity, but what we know is that he's much more and much better than that, that he's the hope of the whole world, that he's the God of the universe, that he's the, the king of kings, that he's the sacrificial lamb who died for us, but he's also the victorious one who rose o- over death and in triumph and that he's going to return and make all things new. We know that about Jesus. We see clearly, we think, and then, and then what happens? We come into conflict with what it actually means that Jesus is all those things. See, that's what happens for the disciples. Jesus says, okay, you've got this profession. You get who I am. Let me tell you more about what that's going to look like. And he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly, which Mark's pointing this out. He's saying this is the first time that this has happened. Right, that Jesus has clearly told his disciples what's going to happen, that he's going to die and raise from the dead. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter saw Jesus' role clearly. Jesus is the Christ. But when the realities of Jesus being the Christ were revealed to Peter, He rebuked Jesus. And I would imagine because Peter didn't think that this sort of suffering and death was befitting the Christ that he had been waiting for. He wanted Jesus to be the Savior, but maybe not if it meant being that kind of Savior. Peter, in his rejection of Jesus here and and Jesus' plan for bringing about the kingdom, he's become like a Pharisee. He has a desire for a God or a Savior who fits into his box of expectations and preferences. And Jesus reminds him of that, and he also warns Peter that you're being like Satan. Right? Who elsewhere in the Gospels Jesus refers to as the father of the Pharisees. Right? Satan, the ultimate enemy of God's truth and God's kingdom. And Peter says, if you keep me from doing this work, you're not my friend at all, you're my enemy. Because this is what I've come to do. We get to the final passage in the section. We've seen the Pharisees be blinded, the disciples and Peter have partial sight, and finally we get to this passage where Jesus calls the crowd to him and he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. So Jesus challenges the crowd with a call that that we still need to heed today. He says, if you want to follow me, you have to be willing to lose everything. If you want to follow me, you have to be willing to lose your life. And, And on the one hand, maybe we could see that and say, I could die for this. But I don't think that we often fully reckon with what it means to actually be willing to lose our life. It's one thing to theoretically say, I I would die for this truth, but you have to be willing to let go of your expectations of what it means to be happy and fulfilled. You have to humbly lay down your convictions and desires and, and everything else that you have and be willing to lay those down to take up a cross. This is what Jesus is saying. He says, become one who follows me into suffering. To take up a cross. Now, now hear this. Crosses we think of very symbolically in reference to the relationship that Jesus has with the cross. But when Jesus said this, he hadn't yet died on a cross. And so they were thinking of it purely in a first century Roman context. But to take up a cross was to take up an object of cultural scorn. right? To, to take up a, an object of societal rejection. It's to lay down the obsession with the things of man at all costs in order to take up the things of God. The Pharisees weren't willing to do that. And so so when the ultimate sign of Christ's death and resurrection were revealed, the Pharisees were blind to its power. Peter began to balk at this idea, and Jesus quickly calls him back into line. The call is to take up our cross to lose our life for Christ's sake, for the sake of the gospel. And this church is where we come into contact of the idea of true sight. Because it is only those who see clearly who are able to take up their cross. This call to to lay down your life, to be willing to lose your life for the sake of Christ and His gospel, you will not be able to do it if you don't see Christ for who He is. It will seem absurd. It will seem undesirable. And so we need to move past just seeing Jesus as this theoretical, theological Lord and Savior. But when we need to think about Jesus, we need to realize, like, oh, no, He, like, actually died for me so that I could be forgiven by the God of the universe. He rose from the dead so that I could experience fullness of life. He's going to make all things new. He's the one who gives sight to the blind. He gives speech and hearing to the deaf. He's the one who provides for the poor. This is the kind of God that that Christ is. And, And if he's that kind of God, then yeah, he can have everything. If he's that kind of God, then I'll follow him wherever he would send me because where else could I want to be? Right? In John, there's this beautiful passage where Jesus has got done telling the crowds, if you want to If you want to be my disciples, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And understandably, a lot of people left. Right? They were like, we're out. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, aren't you going to go too? And Peter once again speaks up and he says, where else are we going to go? You're the one with the words of eternal life. Because Peter saw Jesus clearly and he said, we're not going anywhere else. We're following you. Like that's all there is. True sight is the ability to take up your cross and follow him. And church, I've been wrestling this, with this for the last few weeks. Like every time I open my Bible, I'm coming into contact with, 
with Jesus saying, you've got to be willing to lose your life for my sake if you want to gain it. And here's why that's hard for me. Because I have a really good idea of what it could mean to live a really happy and fulfilled life that doesn't involve laying everything down for Jesus. Right? Like, there's a lot of stuff I think I could buy that would make me happy. Like, look at my internet history. You'll see it. Like, I think those things will make me happy. There's a lot of things I could do with my time that I'm convinced will fulfill me. But that's setting my thing, eyes on the things of man. Those things, like moths will eat them, rust will destroy them, thieves can take them. But if I see Jesus for who he is and I'm willing to run after him regardless of what it takes, then that's a life worth living. That's true sight. No more am I blind. See, see the good news of Christ's death and resurrection is, is that this ultimate sign which points us toward fullness of sight. Christ has died so that we can be forgiven for our blindness and for our bad priorities, and he's been raised so that we can truly see. I want to draw our attention to something that the blind man said after he had received partial sight before we complete our time together. He said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And at first, this passage just seems like well, yeah, I could understand, like, if you've got blurry vision and you've been blind your whole life, how, like, you would think, like, they look like trees. But Mark is trying to show us something because the passage concludes by Jesus telling his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. Like, what is a cross but a tree? Like, he's saying, my church will be trees walking. I am a tree walking toward glory. And so when the blind man's sight was just partial. He saw Jesus and his disciples and he saw people who were different. They looked like trees. They were willing to give up the things of the world to go after the things of God. And, and brothers and sisters, I hope that when our neighbors and our co-workers and our friends experience the life of the church here at Sojourn Montrose, even when they don't fully perceive who Jesus is yet, they'll say, man, they look like trees walk. Like, these are a different kind of people. They have a different kind of priorities. They live with a different kind of satisfaction and joy. Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus wants a whole church full of trees walking. Walking toward sacrificial love and toward the glory of the kingdom. And in this, we will truly see. So let's pray and let's feast at the table that our Lord has set before us because He always does. And let's ask for the Spirit to empower us to live these sorts of lives, to experience the fullness of satisfaction that can only be found when we see Jesus for who He really is. Father, we ask that You would look upon Christ on the tree and reckon that to us as forgiveness. That you would forgive us for thinking we see clearly when we don't, for putting our priorities and our, our eyes on the things of man rather than on the things of you. And I pray, Lord, that you would allow our grips to release this morning so that we could take up the mantle of your kingdom, so that we could take up a life that's truly worth living, so that we could experience the joy of trusting you. If there are those in, in the room who have hard hearts who have been testing you. 
I pray, Lord, that you would show them that they don't need another sign from you. They just need you. Pray, Lord, that you would allow all of us who, who come in with varying degrees of sight and that you would allow us to truly see you for who you are. That we would be like Paul on the road. That we would see you so much that we're temporarily blinded, but then when our sight is restored, we see the world in a way that we never have before. Full of light and opportunity. Pray that our lives would be marked by sacrifice and obedience and joy and that our neighbors would experience the glory of your kingdom as we take up our cross and follow you. That we would be like trees walking around Montrose, walking around Houston, proclaiming the one who has died upon the tree so that all might be forgiven and so that all might see. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.